Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. Well, as I'm sure you you may all know, uh, last night was the 19th annual viewing of Home Alone, uh, as hosted by House Alloway, and. Uh, I was reminded, see, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't allowed to watch Home Alone when I was a little kid. Fun fact that uh, the, the children in that movie were disrespectful to adults. Uh, the adults were also burglars trying to harm children, but you know, I'm not here to take up a fight with my parents. Um, but I was reminded while watching Home Alone by the lovely Catherine O'Hara that Christmas is the season of perpetual hope. If you remember the context of that, it is screamed in an airport, but it nevertheless struck me as true. See, Christmas is the season of perpetual hope. And what does that mean, perpetual hope? Hope everlasting, universal hope that applies to everywhere. Well, it's kind of what this passage is about. The fact that we can hope for anything, anywhere. As I considered this passage, as I considered the idea of a desert flooding and all of a sudden being filled with life, and we'll be going over these verses uh, as, as the sermon continues, but it made me think of another quote from Phil Yancey, who I think is saying kind of the same thing as Catherine O'Hara. Phil Yancey once wrote that grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. And that's the reason for our perpetual hope. That's the reason. This passage is is going to get into it. We're going to explore these metaphors together, what they might mean for a biblical audience, but also what they mean for us today. But if you take nothing else from that, friends, take that universal hope. This time of year, of all years, take that hope that grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. Amen? Amen. So to understand the water, we first have to understand the desert. What's Isaiah doing in Isaiah 41 with this image of the desert? You have this verse here. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. That is a harsh start. That is a stark image in this passage. I think... In my own life, I, I'm experiencing like a lot of comfort that the biblical audience would not have known, right? Like just the fact that we're all sitting right now in relatively soft chairs in a temperature-controlled room, we're pretty well removed from the idea of what a desert can do to a human body without shelter. 
I, I'll never forget the, the one time that I realized how distant I was from the original biblical writers was when I was reading the Psalms alone in my room, and I don't know what Psalm it was, but it was like, it was a desert Psalm. And, and David was talking about how, how thirsty he was and how hot it was and how his tongue was clinging to the roof of his mouth. And just reading it, I unconsciously started reaching for my air conditioner. Like, just reading it made me so uncomfortable that I had to turn on the AC. Like, what? What is that? David and I have almost no shared context when it comes to an understanding of the outdoors, of the brutality of nature. Thankfully, I was, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to be able to visit Israel during my college years, so I, I have some idea to, yes, what the biblical writers would have been referring to when they refer to the wilderness. These are the Qumran caves. Uh, it's, where, it's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you drive about five minutes out of Jerusalem, it starts to look like this just about everywhere. Very quickly as you leave the city borders, it starts to look like this. Just to get an idea of scale, um, those little holes that you see, those little, those little dark spots, those are about the height of a, of a person. Okay, and if you were to turn around, you would see that exact same thing. If you were to turn to your left and your right, you would see that exact same view. Just everywhere you see barren rocks, sand, barren rocks, and sand. And that's the situation that the poor and the needy are in here. They're not just searching for water because they're thirsty, but they know they're going to eat just a little bit later than they would prefer. There's no sign of water anywhere. I was traveling through these lands in an air-conditioned bus, but it didn't take much imagination for me to think, if I were out here without sunblock, much less without water, it would not be a good time. And so if you just think about that, think about how small a person might feel in the, mil in the middle of wilderness. No civilization, no water in sight. Because that's the image that the prophet Isaiah throws at us. It's one we can take literally, but I think we're also supposed to take this as a condition of the soul. What the prophet Isaiah is talking about is not just a time where you feel like a little thirsty. It's not a time when you feel a little parched, but you know you're going to be home with your sink soon. The prophet is talking about a time where you feel thirsty, and the universe just does not seem to care about that fact. It's talking about a time when you feel thirst, and you look around, and all you see, all you see is sand. Has anyone ever had a situation in their life like that? A situation that needed to get better, but you had no idea how it ever would. Situation that was gnawing at you, and yet when you looked in every direction, you didn't see any water, you didn't see any shelter, all you saw was sand. 
and no idea how this would ever end. I think we all have experienced that to some degree. And there's a situation in my life right now that feels more dead than sick. It involves some people who I love very dearly, and so I can't go into it much more from the pulpit than that. But I just want to share that with you because that's what I think of when I'm reading this passage. I'm thinking of a broken situation that my imagination is incapable of solving. Not just a difficult problem, a seemingly impossible one. It's not something that it would take just a few people like rolling up their sleeves and like, okay, a hard afternoon of work or a hard week of work or a hard month of work would solve. It feels impossible. And so here at Christmas, I find myself up against a wall because I believe in the incarnation. I believe in God coming down and I believe in the resurrection. I believe in death being brought to life. But if you were to ask me, what resurrection would even look like in this situation? If you were to ask me what I'm even hoping for, my honest response would be, I don't know. I don't even know what I am hoping for. In this place right now, it seems that whenever I look out on it, all I see in every direction is sand. And so I'll ask you again, does anyone else have a situation in their life like that? It might be something you don't even think about anymore, because that's how dead the situation is to you. You've moved on. You've let it scar over because dwelling on it, thinking about it, only leads to despair. Friends, I'm here to tell you that we should not fear despair. We should not fear it. I'm here to tell you, as strange as it might sound, that hopelessness is not a sign of ungodliness. Hopelessness does not put you outside of the biblical story. In fact, if we're to take this passage seriously, it would seem to put us closer to a need for God than we would have otherwise. Not seeing a solution doesn't mean you don't have enough faith. Feeling hopeless does not mean you are far from God. Because if I could see a solution, if I could solve it, then it really wouldn't be called faith. It wouldn't be religion if it made sense. I hope that doesn't sound too cynical, but like... This belief in resurrection, this belief in life after death, that's not based on evidence. Not for me. That's something I believe because I have to. I have to believe that hope is truly universal. 
I have to believe that it's possible even when I can't envision it. And I have to believe that it's true even when I don't believe that it's true. God's grace is true even when I don't believe that it's true. And at Christmas, the season of perpetual hope, at Christmas of all times, I have to believe that grace not only falls to the unlikely places and not only falls to the somewhat tricky places, it falls to the impossible places. Grace falls to the impossible places. Water falls not just in drought. Water falls in the desert. Because grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. Amen? Amen. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. So what happens next? Does the desert just get wet? Let's see. Let's see what this water does. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. When the water comes, it's not just so the poor and the needy can survive. It's so the lands can thrive. The desert is not just wet at this point, though that in itself would be miraculous. The desert's not just wet, it is a source of life. I want to share with y'all about a little thing called a kibbutz. Who here knows what a kibbutz is or has heard of a kibbutz? You, Gary? Kelly? All right, all right. Some, some fans of the kibbutzim over here. So, uh, kibbutzim is the Hebrew plural. I'm going to say kibbutzes. Kibbutzes. <laughs> kibbutzes are farms in Israel. Now, there's a whole political movement behind why these farms were created and how they were created. And I'm not going to get into that. I just want you to latch onto the image of these farms in the wasteland. This is the Negev. This is, again, the, the desert of, of the Middle East, of Israel. You can see some scant shrubbery along there. Those are those dark patches. But this is what you see. It's just beige and tan as far as you can look. Now, this is a kibbutz in the Negev area. This one in particular was founded in, in 1909. 
There have been people working on this for over a hundred years. It's gone from, through, through human effort, through hard work, nothing natural could have caused this. It's gone from a desert place to a, to a green and verdant area, from desert to water, from water to trees. As we see in the passage, the acacia, the juniper. This particular kibbutz actually has a shrimp farm on it. Um, they, <laughs> they, uh, they, they breed and sell shrimp here, as well as a, a certain species of Australian fish, according to their wiki article. And if you visit their official website, it just kind of looks like a really fancy hotel. <laughs> Like, you can get a room at the kibbutz. There are fun activities to do in the kibbutz. And again, if we go back one slide, in the desert, in the Negev, you go too far off the kibbutz, this is what you'll find. Back to the kibbutz. That's where you can get a room. This is a desert restored this is a desert actually brought further than it ever was before. If you were here last week, to borrow another metaphor, if you were here last week, Gary preached on the Valley of the Dry Bones, as talked about in Ezekiel, where something beyond dead, just dry, disassembled skeletons, became fully breathing people once again. This vision of God's restoration, making the dry bones live again. To piggyback off that, though, this passage goes even further. The bones are not just alive. The bones don't just have flesh and blood and beating hearts. They're thriving. Like, the skeletons are not only living people, but at this point they have nine-to-five jobs. The skeletons have benefits. They have time for family and for hobbies. And the bones are doing really, really well. And they all have, like, really boring names. Like, half of their friends don't even know that they used to be skeletons. They just know them as Carl and Deborah. And it becomes easy to forget that just a month ago, they were dry bones in a valley. Just as if we were to stay in the air-conditioned rooms of the kibbutz, we would forget so quickly. This is a desert. This was a desert. This passage is here so that we can hope beyond what is reasonable. This passage is also here so that we don't forget We don't forget when things seemed impossible, and then all of a sudden they weren't. When things seemed dead, but all of a sudden they were alive. And how does this happen? How is the impossible made possible? It's only by God's grace. It's only because grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. Grace like water flows to the lowest part. Amen? It flows. And it brings not just survival, 
but it brings true life. So what's the point of all this? Why does God get the desert wet? Why does God grow trees in the desert in this passage? What is the point? We have it right away. God is bringing about these pools of water and these juniper and these acacia so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. The point is that in experiencing God's goodness, we don't just get to survive. We don't just get to live a good life. We get to know God. The point in experiencing any of this, whatever grace we encounter, the point of that grace is to get to know the giver of it. In experiencing God's goodness, we get to know God. Again, God is not some distant uncle writing big checks so we can just figure it out alone. Of like, here's the water. What more do you want from me? Like, God comes down and speaks with us. That's Christmas. God comes down and speaks with us. And if we see how Jesus lives his life on earth, we see that grace continues to trickle outward and downward throughout his life. And the conversations that Jesus values are the conversations in the lowest parts. If we look in the, uh, in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. A woman who, again, is fulfilling a very real and physical need by fetching water in these arid lands. But here we find that God does not only give the water of life, God is the water of life. Jesus answers to her. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water I give them will become where? Will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water does not stop at the recipient. The life we receive is not just for ours to hold on to. It's not just for ours to squat over and hoard. The water, the grace given by God, becomes a spring of water welling up out of us, overflowing. And that life reaches even lower. It flows outward and downward. 
and outward and downward to the lowest parts. This challenges us not only to not only to think of where we've limited God's grace in our own life, it causes us to think, who have we called undeserving of God's grace? Who have we looked at in a place lower than ourselves and said, well, grace, I don't know if it can reach that far. I don't know if restoration I don't, I don't even know what I'd be hoping for there. What does the resurrection even look like? But the fact that Jesus is sitting here and speaking to the outcast of outcasts, he's sitting here and he's speaking with a Samaritan woman, which in ancient society would be two strikes against right out the gate. Jesus says, you you are going to be not only a recipient of living water, you're going to be a source. You are not only going to be helped, you are going to help others. The river of God's grace is never dammed. It continues outward and downward. Because grace, like water, flows to the lowest part. Amen? It flows to the lowest part. It gushes forward. Now this is Christmas time. So what does any of this have to do with any of that? In other words, what's the good news? Well, I hope I've given you more than a little bit of good news. I see the good news, however, in this image. These are Mary and Joseph, as we might see them today. No halos except for the advertisement stickers behind their head. No glorious steed except for an out-of-order kitty ride. The whole story of Christmas, guys, the whole story of Christmas is this. It's that the fullest possible grace comes to the lowest possible place. The fullest possible grace in the lowest possible place. The story of Christmas is that a bastard refugee is born the king of angels. Amen? He's born the king of angels. His life is not only significant, his life is God's life made known on earth. Because what else would better challenge us to brave the desert as we wait for rain? What else would better keep us from denying hope to those we think as hopeless? to those we think of as undeserving. And what would draw us nearer to God than a grace that flows like water to the lowest part?
Grace like water flows to the lowest, lowest part. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.